0: We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 4 tonight. Take your Bibles and turn there. We'll continue in our study through the Minor Prophets, and now specifically through the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. go ahead and stand. We'll read the entire chapter. It is our intent to try to cover a chapter at a time where the theme would be larger. Uh, We would look at that. Zechariah, a prophet to the post-exile community, coming back from Babylon after 70 years being there, um, rebuilding the city. Zechariah, Haggai, um, we'll learn next Malachi, were a part of the community of prophets who were encouraging these people to continue the work. Um, Zechariah did so through a very unique means. He had visions and dreams, and uh, primarily dreams. And through, after the dream, an angel would help him interpret the dream, and then of course, he would preach the theme of that, the the uh, interpretation up to the people, as an encouragement or admonition, whatever the Lord would direct, and so we find ourselves in a new dream um, that God gives understanding to, as He has in all these, via an angel, and then this message would be preached to the people. So look with me in the first verse of the fourth chapter of the book of Zechariah. And the angel that talked with me came again, and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And said to me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick and um, of all gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So, I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? And so, you all have the picture? Okay. So, you have a stand, a bowl on top of the stand, and then from that bowl, flowing in seven directions, are little bowls or lamps burning light. Beside that are two trees, and that's the picture presented so far, a further revelation of what the trees look like will come in a minute. So he asked, What are these? Well, the Lord does this first, just so you know. He doesn't answer the question directly. He tells what the meaning of the dream is supposed to accomplish. And then he tells what they are. So, verse 5. Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, that thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof, with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel, having laid the foundation of this house, his hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said to him, What be these two olive branches, and in an a large vision, which through the two golden pipes emptied the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I love these visions, aren't they, aren't they awesome? and kind of unique, and we'll try to see if we can't understand Him tonight. Our Heavenly Father we thank You for the day. We thank You for the coming moments together. Lord I pray through the Holy Spirit's power that You would illuminate this text to our hearts. And Lord I pray that as You intended for the people that came back from Babylon to find encouragement in the text, that tonight we would too. That we would be helped by what You gave to Zechariah in his vision. And I ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for standing. Zechariah 4 brings us to a new vision. Uh, in this case I might call it a waking dream. It's, the, the text implies he, he it was as though I was waking, but it's like uh, this man was sleeping, then he kind of rouses to this dream state, uh, to this vision um, that he sees. But the dream is intended once again to be rehearsed and preached as an encouragement two groups specifically. Number one, to the post-exile community in their great endeavor of rebuilding Jerusalem and specifically the temple. Okay? So, again, context. Um, Zechariah was a prophet, as Haggai was, who was preaching to this post-exile community, post-exile community. Um, when Judah fell, they went to Babylon for 70 years. Uh, now they're being called to come back. They are rebuilding what Babylon destroyed. Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi are preaching to these people to encourage them to be part of this task. And the first order priority was rebuild the temple. Then it would be rebuild the city and your homes. And then, of course, Nehemiah would come later and, and rebuild the walls. And so he's receiving this dream for the people. But even more specifically, he's receiving this dream for the leaders. And in view here is a man named Zerubbabel. Now, we've talked about Zerubbabel. They're the first people who came back um, from Babylon came in a group of 50,000. And they came back with two leaders. Um, one was Joshua, not the Joshua of the latter Old Testament, but Joshua, who was a descendant of Aaron. And so Joshua was uh, of the lineage of the high priest. And so he's serving in the high priest function. Zerubbabel was from the lineage of David. He would never be king, he wouldn't be a king again until King David sits on the throne again ultimately in the millennial reign. But um, he was of the lineage of David and he did serve as the governor of the area. He was placed in that position. But he would be a representative of the royal line of David and that royal line's association with the temple. And and so, this message was really meant to be spoken to the people and to Zerubbabel, who was their leader, to give them encouragement to to fulfill this task of rebuilding the temple. Um, This future temple, again, had a part in their national identity, of course, in their religion, but also in God's ultimate purposes and having an epicenter from the earth from which to work to be a blessing. To the whole world. So, this was a big deal they were doing. They were building the temple that would be part of God's eternal plan. Now, in this overwhelming task to rebuild a temple from the ruins, and that's an important word to consider tonight, from the ruins left after the Babylonian invasion and destructive Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and Joshua were these leaders. These people were rebuilding, of course, the temple, their homes, a place. Uh, to to have commerce again in the city, uh, a place to worship, but they were making a statement to the world that God's work on this planet has not yet finished. And again, so what they're doing is a big deal. And I, I'm going to guess they had some sense of this, at least the part that this is the place where God was to meet them, where they were to work, Whether they had the whole eschatology in view or not. I don't know, but I I have a, an idea these people do what they were doing was important. But even though they knew this, uh, this project was overwhelming. Okay. They've been gone 70 years. Many had built a for life in Babylon. Um, As we've already studied last week, some had to really be encouraged to come home, some didn't. But it was a huge, huge task. Um, In many ways, rebuilding the temple was probably more difficult than if they were just to start to build the temple from scratch. Okay. Uh, if you just had a blank field, you could go out there immediately with the bulldozers and stuff and maybe clear the land and just start building, but that's not what they had to work with. They went back and there was literally a mountain of rubble. Okay? Now you got to think no heavy equipment. Okay, in context. We would think we'll just push it all over. <laughs> All they have is manpower, and I suppose to a degree, beast power. You know, cows, oxen, donkeys. But where you got to think the magnificence of Solomon's temple, this unbelievably majestic, incredible structure, just that alone is collapsed, completely collapsed on itself the city is collapsed. The walls are collapsed. In ancient times, when an army came in and conquered a city, they would raise it. They would would just tear it down, really so much so that it couldn't be rebuilt. And so, these 50,000 people travel back, and they they lay eyes on that. And God says, "Um, you you rebuild the temple. Okay, before that, um, or along with that, we know there's a hostile crowd that's there in the vacuum of Israel being present. Other people moved in and took up residence in in the area, in the city who did not want the Jews coming back. There was this resistance from, again, many people just not wanting to come back because of the difficulty, because of the fear. Uh, They had a limited workforce. 50,000 seems like a lot, but that includes children, that includes women, that would include older, that include little ones. The actual available workforce of of men and beasts was probably severely uh, limited that could actually begin to do this this work. This would have taken thousands, if not 10,000 of men a long time to complete. Um, It was a great task. And added to this is probably something that we, we wouldn't fully understand um, Zechariah is encouraging them to do this, right? Haggai's doing this too. But the people probably at this time didn't have an overwhelming confidence in the prophets. Um, how, how this would relate to us? Okay, so we all know what we think about TV evangelists today, right? You, 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 okay, see, we laugh because we already know how we feel about that, right? Okay, but see the deal is I get lumped in with that. Does that make sense? People look at preachers with skepticism. I don't know if I've conducted myself in a way that's deserving of that or not. I'd hope not. But the point is there's a lot of things that calls itself Christian and Christian leadership today can be looked at at an outside world and and just say that's, that's, I, I really can't trust that. Does that make sense to you? Well, what happened in Israel's history that was kind of the same thing that happened the prophets really began in the day of Moses. Well, Moses didn't have a lot of competition, although Aaron and some others kind of quickly, you know, won a place of prominence too. But from the days of Moses forward, there were competing voices against them. And other prophets rose up, and they, wanted the, they wanted the prominence, they wanted the attention, and, and so they would say, well, thus saith the Lord. Well, of course, these were people who did not have audience with God, but they acted as though as they did. And so the people, you know, they, they didn't really have a, a supernatural ability to distinguish who's a real prophet and, and who's not. And, and what they basically decided was either the man's message who would come true if it was foretelling, or the guy we liked. And they often listened to the guy they liked who had the easier message. So, over time competition grew more fierce between prophet and false prophet. And even though God's men always proved to be true, people's confidence was wounded, and um, because many of the men that they thought they believed in proved false, and just think about that. If you there were lots of guys they trusted in, and what they said about the nation, you know, championing through Assyria and championing through Babylon. There's people who believed all this stuff, even though Jeremiah was saying, "Not going to happen, not going to happen." And so, when this fell apart, some of their confidence in the religious establishment as a whole became jaded. So, much of what is being said in Zechariah 4 um, is also, as we can go back and look in the book of Haggai, and is done more repeatedly in the book of Malachi, is there's this language of, I'm speaking for the Lord, you need to believe me. Zechariah is saying that. I'm, I'm, I've, I've been in an audience with the Lord, I've, I've I heard his, he showed me a dream. And part of the language here is him persuading them that what God told me is true. And the reason that's important to Zechariah is because I need you to do what I say. You follow me? So he's trying to instill confidence in them that he's from the Lord so they will find the encouragement that God intends. It's it's a lot there to consider, but it's what's happening here. They wanted, um, Zechariah wanted these people to depend more on the Holy Spirit and of course a centered focus on God's Word, and that was his reoccurring message. Uh, We're going to see here in a moment, Uh, focus on the Holy Spirit's power, and let's make sure we're doing what God's Word tells us to do. So, very quickly we'll go through the text, and I think all this will make sense to us as we do this. So, in verse 1 we're introduced again to Zechariah and his companion, the interpreting angel, and he's been gone for a while, but now he's back. And this time he seems to wake Zechariah out of a sleep into a vision world. And he sees a scene that he interprets later on in the text. And in verse 2 after seeing this scene, or presented it to him, the angel asks, what do you see? Zechariah looks and sees and he says, I see a candlestick made of pure gold with a bowl on top of it with pipes or channels leading to seven lamps or smaller bowls extending from it. Now this is not the menorah as we would typically think. Uh, it would be like the menorah. And the difference is, I couldn't tell you exactly why they are in this text. People have opinions. But you basically have a, a candlestick with a bowl full of oil. And then from this flowing, again, pipes or flutes to seven lamps that uh, we'll, we'll find out later what they represent. But this is what he sees at this point. And so he, he says that. And um, again, the image is like the menorah, but a bit different. And beside the stand were two trees, olive trees, which I'll go ahead and tell you in time represent two men. One on each side of the candlestick and its bowls, and so Zechariah asks the angel, "Well, yes me what I see. I, this is what I see. What are they? What do these represent?" Well, in verse five we have a rhetorical question that's intended to build anticipation. Well, don't you know? No, I, I don't know. And it's just a little device that builds tension in the text and for the prophet. But in verse six we think we're going to an answer, but we don't get an immediate answer. Instead, we get what the vision is supposed to induce and incite as a result of its interpretation. And so, here's the purpose of the vision, what comes next. And the purpose of the vision is meant to be a specific encouragement to the man Zerubbabel, this descendant of David who is acting as a leader. He is the governor of the land. Again, he's not his king, but he does stand as royal representative to the people. And in the place of what? This royal representative would mean to the temple, and so the word of God is to this man in this vision. And so, what what is the Lord wanting to say to Zerubbabel? Well, he says to Zerubbabel, to this vision, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's not by uh, human ability, it's not by uh, great resources, it's not of any things that you're thinking right now in your mind that you need to this work it's not by any of those things that this work's going to be accomplished but rather it's going to be by your dependence upon the spirit of the lord Amen. that's the intent of this message that's why I want you to see verse 6 not by might nor my power but by my spirit shall this temple be rebuilt this is an encouragement for Zerubbabel to get his eyes off the, the mountain of the rubble of the rubble and his limited human ability and resources and that his faith Confidence and courage should be bolstered because God will be His resource and strength. And, of course, this refrain, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, is rehearsed in numerous places in Scripture by Micah. It's in other places in the Old Testament. We really see this truth in the New Testament as well. And so that's what he's saying. It's, It's not by, you're looking at maybe, you know, 8,000 men who can do this, no resources, but don't look at all of that. You look at what I can do, is the message. Verse 7 is a reference to the challenge ahead of him. So, verse 7 is a reference to a mountain, but the mountain is not a mountain like in the landscape. The mountain is the debris. Okay, he's talking about building. This is the context. He's saying, you're looking And I'm just saying, oh, mountain, what are you to Zerubbabel? You're nothing. Zerubbabel's bigger than this debris. He's telling Zerubbabel this. You're bigger than the mountain of debris, and you're going to make this mountain as though it were a plain. You get it? You with me? Okay, you're staring at me. I'm sure you get it. (laughs) Let's just look at it, because I'm not sure you're with me. Verse 7. It says, who art thou, O great mountain? The word mountain literally here is a reference to the rubble of debris that stands in the place of the temple. Who are you before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, plain, flat place. Instead of that, Zerubbabel's task, okay, look up here for a second. We think about build a temple. The first task is get the stuff off the site. And the first task is to build a foundation. And I can tell you in a moment how I know specifically it's a reference to a foundation because it says so in the text. But he's going to say to us, you can make a foundation in this place where a mountain of rubble is currently at. Okay? So, um, he says, this mountain through your efforts will be made a plain or be made flat, a foundation for the temple. Now, I've got to stop here and reference you to a tradition to understand the next part. Israel wasn't the only place rebuilding something. As a matter of fact, in history, lots of cities had been destroyed, and lots of cities, lots of different temples, lots of different worship sites had been rebuilt. It was really not just Israel's tradition, but kind of an ancient historical tradition that when a city returned to, a, to this pile of rubble, that someone from a kingly lineage, if not the king himself, if he could return, would walk into this mountain of rubble, he would search it. And he would find a suitable stone, a a suitable building block, and then he would pick up that stone, and then he would carry it out before all the people, and they would all shout, in this case, grace, grace, peace, peace, It's it's a form of celebration, and that stone would become the very first cornerstone or building stone of the new foundation. You with me? Okay, so that's what he's referencing that is going to do here. So look at verse 7 again. or I'm sorry, verse yeah, 7. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? And thou shalt become a plain, and, thou shalt be, uh, and he shall bring forth the headstone. It's the capstone. It's the cornerstone. It's the first stone. It's the, it's the first stone of the new foundation that will be laid. Look here. He's saying, Zerubbabel, you're going to start this thing. But that's not all. Okay, And so when this happens, it's a celebration, we're going to rebuild our city, we're going to build a temple. And then verse 8, he said, but more than that, you're going to do more than get off to a good start. In verse 9, he says, you're going to finish it. So it says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. So that's what he's doing, he's rebuilding the foundation from this mountain of rubble. His hands shall also finish it. So this guy hadn't started yet. But God says, you can do it, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. You're going to start this project. And that's what, no, the Lord of hosts has sent me into you. And then there's this great inspirational quote that we often preach from, topical sermons. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. What's the plummet? Well, the plummet is the last stone. The plummet is the final stone. So, Zerubbabel has two stones in his hand in this vision. He has the capstone, the first stone. He goes in the rubble. He pulls out this stone, the stone. He comes out. The people rejoice. And then they're all thinking, we've got we to remove all this build. You know, We've got to take care of this. But in the vision, Zerubbabel also has the final stone. And he sets it in place, which represents the completion of the foundation of the temple, which would have been in many ways the most difficult part. The plumbing is the final stone of the foundation. And again, insert this. Is this inspirational phrase? um, Who has despised the day of small things? And that's a great phrase to preach from, by the way, because you know Moses' staff, David's sling, um, you know uh, Elijah against the might of you know of of Ahab and Jezebel. You know we can't despise the day of small things in God because through small things God can do great big things when we yield things to Him. but that's an encouragement and a reason to do this. So he says, Ruble, you will lay both the first and the last stone, because, and this is interesting, now he gets to what the, the candlestick represents now. He, he said what he wants to happen, but now he goes back to saying what he sees in this verse. So, he basically says in verse 10, look there with me, he says, because in the hands of Ruble with those seven, Okay, the seven bowls on the lampstand, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Okay, so, so what's the candlestick and the seven bowls represent? Well, it, it represents God's gaze, God's eyes. You can say whatever you want to, it's a metaphor for God's presence. It's what you're going to depend on, Zerubbabel, instead of resources that you think you don't have, what you need to understand is that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully set upon Him to do His work. Second Chronicles 69. you with me? Same exact phrase, it just doesn't say seven eyes there. In this um, text it's the seven eyes of the Lord, it's the same seven eyes that we've talked about in the book of Revelation. Why seven eyes? I don't know it just represents God. When we get to heaven, we'll, we'll figure that part out, okay? But for our purpose, it's enough to know it just represents this. The candlestick is the gaze of God. What does it mean to use a ruble? This is the oil you're going to depend on. This is the resource you're going to depend on. This oil, God's oil, God's power, God's might, God's gaze. He's upon you. What in the world do you need about more than that? That's the point. And that's what he has, the eyes of the Lord upon him. In the text in 2 Chronicles, this was actually given in a negative way to King Asa because Asa failed to trust in God. And when God gazed down him, there was punishment, not help. But for this, this case, God's looking his eyes throughout the whole earth, and he sees the Zerubbabel. And he says, you're doing my will, and you're going to have my power. That's pretty cool. But anyway, I love studying this stuff. It's pretty neat. And so, now we have half the vision. But now we see more of this explained in verse 12. He says, okay, I got that. What are the two trees? And so, now this explanation is not just two trees, but two pipes, two golden pipes coming out of the trees emptying golden oil, which by the way, when you pour olive oil it looks golden, um, out of themselves. And the angel begins to answer in verse 13, and in verse 14, he said, these are the anointed ones. Okay, who are the anointed ones? Um, most likely, these are references to the men who that historically have been the recipients of God's power, and then pouring that power out in display before the people. Okay, who would that be? The prophets. Okay? Who historically, in the Old Testament, received the Spirit of the Lord? The prophets. What did the prophets do? Well, they stood in God's presence, they heard His Word, and then from them went the oil of God to the people to strengthen them, to admonish them, to encourage them, to call them to the work. Okay? God's eyes are upon you, I'm the candlestick, I'm with you. And beside me, there are these two men, most likely Zechariah and Haggai, and I've spoken to them to give to you the words that I want you to hear, to do what I've called you to do. Because that's the way God worked in that time. These two anointed ones, these two men, you listen to them. This is going back to re-instilling a confidence in the people that God worked through the prophets Um, Again, I can't tell you with certainty your dogmatism. These two guys represent Zachariah and Haggai. I'm fairly certain that's what's included in the idea. Um, And that guys, that God's eyes are on you, and I'm working through them to to tell you what you need to do. They are passing my word on to you. The prophets, I can say it this way, the prophets in the Old Testament were to fuel God's men to do God's work. They literally had, in a way that's unique in the Old Testament, God's spirit resting upon them. I can say it this way. The Old Testament prophets were conduits of God's power. Think Moses. Right? Think Samson. Think Elijah. Think Elisha. Um, for a moment, Saul acted in the place of a prophet, David, and when the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and what was, and that's not just a metaphor, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, that's right. and they had what? They had power. They had oil. And they often used it to be an encouragement to the rest of the people to do what they were supposed to do. Micah said that he was full of the Spirit of the Lord, Jeremiah claimed to have stood in the court, in, the, in chapter 23, Jeremiah, in the presence of the Lord. Moses was filled with the Shekinah glory of God's presence, with God's spirit. Uh, this was again on Samson, Saul, David, Elijah, other prophets, Ezekiel. There was a connection between the, the, the men of God and his spirit, and then them having power to lead God's people to do what he had called them to do. The prophet's primary task was to take this power, this oil, and use it uh, to point people back to God, um, to his word. I mean, think about all we've been studying, the minor prophets. All these men have been standing in odds with God, receiving his Holy Spirit's power, and then saying, would you guys get back to the covenant that you established in the days of Moses so God can bless you? And at times they, they performed great miracles to demonstrate this power, but, but that's the way this spirit worked. So God gave His spirit and power and word to a few to pour that out into others, to do His, to his, do his work. This goes all the way back to the book of numbers. This helps us make the connection with what's happening in Zechariah 4. Numbers 11:17. Moses is the place of leadership, specifically leadership, first prophet. He's overwhelmed by a bunch of complaining people. The task is too big for him. So God says this, and I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take the spirit which is upon thee, and I will pour it upon them. Who's the them? Well, the other leaders that he needs their help. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, and that that you don't have to bear this alone. So, that was God's answer to Moses, you take what's of your spirit that came from me, and you give it to other men. But what Moses really wanted was more than that. In Numbers eleven twenty nine, 29, he basically prayed for this great day. He said, would God, he said, would God that all the people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them all. <laughs> Well, in Moses' mind, he was thinking, if I can do all this with God's Spirit, and you can place a little bit on the guys so we can get more done. And he says, oh, would God, if you just put your Spirit on Him and on you and on you and on you, think about all we could do. And imagine how little problem there would be. Imagine how little problem there would be if everybody had a part of God's spirit. Dramatic pause for effect. You get it? Well, that prayer was answered in Acts chapter 1 and 2. you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Acts 1.8. In other words, God says, Jesus did His atoning work, and now something's going to happen for the first time. God's Spirit and power is not going to come to one man through a prophet. Everyone's going to become a prophet and a priest. And in chapter 2, that's exactly what happens, and the Holy Spirit comes down upon all the people. And then what happens? Oh, a bunch of fishermen Galilean nobodies, take on the Roman world and turn it upside down. Power to change the world because they had the Holy Spirit's power and were obeying His Word. And by the way, they did it not by might, nor by power, not by any human potency or resource or ability, but they did it by the Spirit and the Word of God. Now, if that doesn't humble us, see, I could just finish there and feel like I've overwhelmed myself. See, we, like the people of Zechariah's day, need to hear and heed this fourth chapter. Because it's really easy for us to operate as individuals and as a church depending upon something other than the Holy Spirit of God and His Word. We can try to advance His Kingdom in a thousand other ways. It is absolutely clear that in the New Testament that the impact of the Gospel on the Roman world was not due to the leadership skills of great visionary orators because of their individual abilities. But rather because the Holy Spirit worked through the human, because it worked through human weakness and its agency. Paul embraced this. When I am weak, he is what? He argues that God chose the the silly things, the base things, the unwise things of the world to confound the wise. All too often we, us, you, me, Become more dependent and interested in the latest seminar on visionary leadership, programs, some book, styles to accommodate the culture to move forward and accomplish the things that God says He'll do if we just depend on the Holy Spirit and, his word, and the Word of God. Now, this is not an excuse for being um, backwards and steeped in tradition that means nothing. But I'm going to tell you something. If we think we can compete with what God can do and accomplish the same amount of work, we are absolutely fools. Amen. That's right. You realize that the exact same power that God used these Galileans to turn the world upside down in rests in us? That's right. I don't think we're persuaded. Zechariah 4 is a call to the church to step out and experience the empowerment of God. We need to realize that God is the conduit we need most and more than anything else. God's spirit and power and His truth is what this world needs. Okay, now look up here for a second. God's spirit and His word are the answer for the inner city church in its brokenness, in its destituteness, in its fragmented families? God's Holy Spirit and His Word is the answer. God's Holy Spirit and His Word are the answer for the suburbanite church that is at rest and at slumber and is overly comforted and is distracted by a thousand things. Not some methodology to reach the yuppies or the Millennials. Not some seminar we, we, we can use Instagram and in this stuff and I don't mind, but it's not a substitute. Right. It's the answer for your family. Right. Yeah. I can help you. I can counsel you. I can do a thou- I, I can try and I can try and I can try, but I cannot do what the spirit of God and his word can do. That's right. It's the answer. It's the answer for your weakness. It's the answer for your bitterness. It's the answer for your brokenness. It's the answer for our church. It's the answer for our mountain of challenges. Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in chapter 3, verse 16, that he, God, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with his might by his spirit. What did Paul want for the church to know something of the power of the Spirit? Why? Evidently, that would be the answer for a lot they would face in their life, just as, just as the rubable did. The challenge here in Galatians, same thing, to, be, to live by the Spirit and its fruit, and to be led by the Spirit. Jesus himself in Luke eleven thirteen. 13. Now listen, please listen. If ye then being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the holy spirit to them that ask him. Ask him. He's there. But where's the asking? We, we, we meet every week as a staff, and we plan, we scheme, we collaborate. And all that's important. It's a help, it helps us look sharp. But there's got to be some asking. And you can try to fix your life in a thousand ways, and you can get self help and improvement, and you can read a book, and I'm not against it. I think it'll help you. Yeah. But there also needs to be some asking for the Holy Spirit's power and the guidance of God's Word. because see there's a balance there in Colossians chapter 3, Paul occurs this to be, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just the Spirit, but let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he goes on to talk about the role of the father and the mother and in the home and then of slaves. In other words, he tells you, 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 you live life by the Spirit of God and His Word. See, we need both of these things. The Word without the Spirit, and you will dry up. The Spirit without the Word, you will blow up. But the Word with the Spirit, you just might grow up. And we all need to do more of that. Growing up. As a church... And as an individual, we need what Zechariah was encouraging. Hey, Zerubbabel, there's a mountain in front of you. It's really big. And you're not going to remove it by your own might or your own power. The resources that you have, your speaking ability. But here's the deal. God's eyes are upon you. And he's here to help you. And you listen to these men Because these are my voices. This is my encouragement. But in this case, God speaks to all of our hearts. We all have the same access that Zechariah and Haggai did. We want to listen. And He said, Now you go do the work I've asked you to do in my strength and power. Too much of what we do in life, in our job, in parenting, in our Christian work and effort. I'm not against program, I'm not against being thoughtful and sharp. I'm not against being organized. I'm not against things being done neat, decently, in order, and with excellence. But the Lord help us all not to depend on those things more than the Spirit of God and His Word.